Okay, hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's World of Intelligence podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit. And on this episode, I'm joined by Samantha North, who is an expert on disinformation. Um, Samantha, there's a lot I could potentially tell the audience about you and your background, but it would perhaps be better if you describe some of it yourself. Because I know you just, you're coming to the end of a PhD and you've, you've done a lot of research and work in this area. And I wanted to make sure um, you get a chance to describe some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, hi, Terry, and hi, everyone who's listening. It's good to be here and, and have this chance to chat about uh, my area of interest and expertise. So Terry was right that I am in the, in the final year of a PhD um, that is involved in the research of tribalism online. So basically, I'm looking at the way two sides of a political conflict interact with each other on social media. And for the purposes of my research, I chose Brexit as a topic to study. And I'm looking at how leavers and remainers interact on Twitter. And I've got a big data set which covers three years of interactions from the beginning of the referendum in June 2016 to early 2019. And wow. it's 80 gigabytes of data. So one of the biggest challenges was actually, um, you know, moving it around on the computer and, and running scripts on it because it is just so big and so cumbersome. But we got there in the end and the, my first journal article will be coming out in the next couple of months. So I'm quite excited and kind of relieved as well <laughs> about that. Yeah, no doubt. When you talk about tribalism online, that's a huge topic to take on in the sense that, like you said, with that quantity of data and, and all those comments that you're having to digest and analyze. Let's maybe talk a little bit more about some of your other work as well, because I know you've been involved in other projects looking at disinformation. But, you know, what else can you, you sort of um, say about any of those projects, if, if at all, anything at all? Yeah, totally. I mean, I can I can talk in a general sense about some projects and I could be a bit more specific about others. My biggest project that sort of got me into into this space in a, in a consultancy sense was um, for the Global Disinformation Index, who I'm not sure if you've heard of, but perhaps some of the listeners have. Um, it's a nonprofit based in London and New York. And the main goal of this organization is to provide a risk rating of all news websites online that um, gives an indication of how likely that website is to carry disinformation. So it's quite a, again, quite a massive undertaking. And I was with them for most of 2019, uh, helping them with their data analysis and sort of prepping all of these, this huge amount of domains to, to get started, to get the machine learning algorithms started, to train them and so on and so forth. So that, that was a a very interesting ride. And I, I think something a bit more unusual than the typical kind of threat intelligence and election monitoring work. Uh, but saying that, that's what I'm doing now. Yeah, I'm primarily wow. doing election monitoring, and that's you know I really enjoy that. So in terms of that, I mean I can't be as specific with that, but sure. um, <laughs> I've sure. been working uh, via a couple of clients um, on behalf of some of the, the social media platforms. We'll leave it there, <laughs> and <laughs> they basically just um, enlist us for various small projects as, as things come up. So um, we, we did some work on. Taiwan 2020, back in January now, which, which seems like such a long time ago with everything that's happened. <laughs> it really does. You're right. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? It's like another yeah. life almost. Um, but we did a few months um, around that, and that, that was basically tracking uh, conversations on um, a cross-platform basis and looking for signs of Chinese Communist Party interference and inauthentic behavior geared towards supporting one of the candidates and like lambasting the other one. And in the end, the incumbent president, Tsai Ing-wen, 
uh, won by a landslide, I believe. So <laughs> whatever manipulation efforts were going on to discredit her didn't seem to succeed in that case. It's so, really interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you, know, you, you mentioned there just a few, th- well, there's a few, a number of different things I want to pick up on and maybe, you know, circle back to. So, but first I wanted to sort of ask you, how did you get into this topic? How did you sort of start out by deciding you wanted to research disinformation? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's been a kind of a zigzag. Um, in 2014, I went to Istanbul to, to carve out a career as a freelance journalist, which I managed to do to an extent. Um, and while I was there, uh, it was, it was when ISIS were, were becoming, were, were you know, j- jumping onto the scene in, in the summer of t- 2014. And, some of the articles that I, I pitched and wrote were on security related topics. And there was a lot of talk generally about ISIS propaganda, right? You'll remember, mm, you know, how, yeah. how, how infamous they were for their, their slick PDFs and their videos. Yeah, and definitely. All that stuff. And, and that's sort of been a, a big focus of the work in our team for, you know, I mean, on extremist groups generally for, for over a decade. And, and certainly the ISIS example, like you mentioned there, the sort of production quality and the level that they reached was totally different to what we'd seen before. Um, and that really did cause a stir, I think, amongst you know, a lot of analysts and people watching it, uh, that, that scene uh, generally for over time. So, yeah, so how did, how did you sort of um, get into looking at that? Was that as part of being a journalist? I guess that was a big story at the time for you in being over there, or was that just sort of something that drew your attention? It was um, it was an event that you know was was directly relevant because even though obviously Istanbul's not on the Syrian border but it's still in a in a bordering country and it did feel more immediate being being located there. You know I was in communities of, of journalists who were going to Syria so I was quite sort of aware of of all the the developments there. Um, and at one point you know I was quite keen on sort of getting into work as a as a terrorism analyst um, and then. Kind of, well, I came back to London um, in 2016, and the um, the whole Brexit and Trump scenario happened. Oh gosh, yeah, of course, <laughs> all, all of these, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I see how I see how things are start, sort of fell into place there. That yeah, one thing led to another, and, and I guess you found yourself looking at disinformation. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows where I'd be if it weren't for Brexit and Trump? After, wow. but yeah, that that was the, that was the beginning of it, really. And then in in 2017, I was fortunate enough to find this PhD opportunity um, with funding from the one of the research councils, and that was basically the beginning of it. And things just kind of kind of evolved from there, as as you know. Um, the last four years has been a, a roller coaster with all this this, this world of disinformation and. New things are happening every day, so there's no shortage of things to do. Wow, yeah, indeed. So, uh, well, in that time, you know, we've had some some big significant events like Brexit, like the US elections in 2016. Um, things have sort of spun on since then. You've, you've had, a, as you mentioned, a chance to look at specific cases in different countries like Taiwan. But is, is there a sort of general trend or picture that you've seen emerging in the way that disinformation has perhaps evolved over that period? Yeah, I think um, every every campaign is if, if it's going to be a, you know an effective disinformation campaign, it needs to be aware of the cultural nuances and, and context. Like like for example, when I worked on the Taiwan project, one of the first things I did was to kind of to spend a few hours educating myself on Taiwan's politics, and particularly what sort of cleavages and, and divides there were in in that, because playing on exacerbating divisions is probably a core component of most disinformation campaigns across the board. 
Um, in terms of evolving trends, uh, I've noticed, I think, on a, on a very simple level that what used to be, you know, fake news back in 2016, those very blatant clickbaity kind of, you know, websites with shock news about Hillary Clinton, for example. Yeah. Um, I don't think they are so common now because uh, I think to an extent, some people have become, you know, more immune to those and it's just not sophisticated enough. But, but I, I think things are shifting towards more of activity that goes on between individual users within Facebook groups, for example. Like, if you remember a while ago, a few months ago now, I think, uh, there was a protest in, in Michigan about, um, lockdown, people who were anti-lockdown. Yes. Yeah. Remember that? They went out in the streets with someone with their guns and yeah. they protested lockdown. And there's a big, uh, at least one, probably more, Facebook group, local private Facebook group for Michigan with thousands and thousands of members where a lot of, um, posts and, and comments were taking place, people were riling each other up and, you know, talking in a very um, infuriated way about how much they they were against lockdown. And this kind of group is full of conspiracy theories that just add fuel to this. So you might see things like coronavirus is a hoax or Bill Gates is responsible for it in some way because he wants to give us all mandatory vaccinations. This kind of thing, you know, these, these narratives that keep popping up Mm-hmm. again and again and have done so far throughout the pandemic and you know this is the kind of thing that can can take root with some sections of society and push people into real life harmful activities like going to protests on the streets with guns a terrible idea during a pandemic in terms of disinformation would you say that that's a, a very deliberate shift from the people behind those campaigns to get away from maybe that the mass sort of broadcast, um, you know, um, fake news, as you, as you described, that they're sort of blatantly fake into developing and maybe growing and or 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 are they are they sort of just getting into existing Facebook groups and then spreading the message that way? Or are they actually deliberately setting up those groups to, to spread that message? Yeah, the, the, the last sentence that you just said is, is a really interesting thing and something that I'm currently working on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always easy to find out, you know, who, who is responsible for setting up a Facebook group. Sure. I, I, I believe only Facebook really has that information. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is possible to, you know, look for patterns and look for other kinds of suspicious behavior in the groups. Uh, I, I did find one today, actually. Um, what was it for? It was a, just a, a pro-Trump group that was sharing. Um, it contained a lot of links being shared from a particular domain that we've linked to North Macedonia, to, you know, the infamous groups there that were sharing right. stuff in 2016 for money. So just, just, yeah, I was going to say, just for those in, who are listening who maybe aren't aware of that phenomenon in, in Macedonia, do you want to sort of describe a little bit about that and how it worked? <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. And, and is that still? A, sure. I mean, is it still a, a, a sort of hotspot for that type of activity? Well, some of, some of them, some of the people from last time are back and, and trying again in the pandemic. So uh, I don't know if it's as much as a hotspot as before, but there's definitely some activity um, geared towards you know making some ad money from from that extra activity and clicks around the pandemic. So just to give a bit of background, um, back in 2016, some teenagers, some, some young people with good skills on the, on the internet, probably SEO people or marketing people in, in the town of Veles, I think, don't know how to pronounce it, but a Macedonian city. And 
they discovered that if they um, created websites containing very um, clickbaity U.S. politic political content, that they could make money from Google ads from people who visited and clicked on those articles from from the U.S. and they did some split, some A/B testing um, for pro-Hillary Clinton content and pro-Trump, pro-Trump anti-Hillary and pro-Hillary anti-Trump to see which of those pairings would would give the most clicks. And of course, they found out that you know, anti-Hillary and pro-Trump was the best combination for making as many ad dollars as possible. So I think there was there has been a few interviews with some of the the people that ran this, and I remember at least one of them saying that. He didn't care at all about, you know, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, whichever one, one of them won the presidency didn't mean anything to him. It was just whichever brought in the most ad money. You know? So it was an easy way to make money, basically. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so in a way, that election was influ- could have been influenced in some way by people who didn't actually care about the outcome. And I think that's a very interesting angle and quite disturbing in a way. <laughs> it really is. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is this is pretty good juncture which to ask you the question so um what's the difference between misinformation and disinformation because we do hear about those two terms in conjunction a lot and, and they overlap and i think in people's minds they maybe get a bit confused um but it'd be great to get your explanation of, of those two different terms yeah that that's actually a very common question and i, I know i wrote a blog post about that recently mm. because pe- people do ask this all the time and mm-hmm. um it's, it's quite it's quite an easy answer so Basically, misinformation is a, a broader term, and that re- refers to a wide range of misleading content. So that might be rumor or satire or even just a just a genuine human error. Um, but m- the, the term misinformation does not acknowledge intention, intent. So uh, in contrast, disinformation is false content that has been created with an intention to deceive. So that's so where the difference all, it, lies. It's all about the intent behind it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. And actually, can I just throw in a third term there, which yeah, I think is do. useful? Um, malinformation. That's the, the third one. And malinformation. Less known. Yeah. yeah and we and don't that hear is. That one much at and all. We don't, do we? It's, an, it's no. one I came across recently. I think it was from um, First Draft News, who are a very okay. interesting organization in this space. But mm. malinformation is information based on reality, but that's used maliciously to, to cause harm to a target. So that could be an individual, it could be a country or an organization. And I can give you a good example, mm. which would be um, when Hillary Clinton's private emails were leaked in 2016. You know, yep. they were real, but they were sent out with the with the intention to harm the target. And that's malinformation. Interesting. Interesting. So could it be a case of picking out, say, something which is factually accurate? So let's say you had a political candidate who might have a previous conviction or something and just sort of amplifying and continually hammering that point with that intent to harm them. Would that yeah, be potentially? I think there are gray areas actually. Right. Um, I mean, I mean, I know that when those emails were leaked, you know, a, a ton of disinformation emerged around them. Right. Um, but, and I, I mentioned this as well in, in, the, in that blog post, um, that I think, Okay, let's say like a, a disinformation campaign begins with uh, a fake story that's been created, like, and it's it's definitely fake. Let's say a doctored video of a political candidate edited in a way to suggest he had dementia. Right. I think that's common. It's, it's actually happened. But okay. Um, yep. So like that that is disinformation, right? But then let's say it's you know it spreads around social media and someone then shares it because they they genuinely believe it and they want to alert their neighbor not to vote for this candidate because they believe genuinely he might have dementia. 
Mm-hmm. The person who's sharing it, I don't think that they are sharing disinformation themselves because they don't have a, a, um, a malicious intent. Sure. You know? Yeah. So it's yeah. quite interesting how the, how the gray areas between them fluctuate quite a lot. And it's something I w- would be quite keen to research more at some point in the future. Because yeah, I think definitely. that, you know, those change as, as a piece of content spreads across the Internet. Mm. And so thinking, thinking about, uh, again, that more recent sort of case you mentioned in, in Taiwan, was what, what sort of came up there in terms of the level of, you know, that deliberate attempt to um, put, in inf- put, put in information which is false or potentially influence the, uh, the election from outside? Was there a lot of that activity going on? There was quite a lot, yeah. Um, the, the majority of it targeted the incumbent Tsai Ing-wen. Um, so there was one one particular story that I remember. Um, she was accused of having, I think, faked her PhD from London School of Economics. And right. this, I think, was was a case that that came up a couple of years ago. So it's been something that's been going on for a while. And the London School of Economics have responded and, and said that it, it's nonsense and her PhD is genuine and so so on and so forth. So you know, as far as I'm concerned, I, I believe the LSE. Right, so, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, what what more can you have to believe somebody, right? <laughs> I know we live in a sure. post-truth world, but um, <laughs> so it, you can you can assume that people trying to trying to push this this narrative around when the presidential election is happening have got some malicious intention and trying to you know smear that candidate. So we notice a lot of activity around those that narrative. There were there were Facebook groups created to um, to support uh, Han Guoyu, the the alternative candidate, the the pro China one, right. and quite a lot of stuff on Twitter actually. And one thing that struck me was that China didn't didn't seem to be in some ways all that sophisticated in the kind of accounts that were created. You know, like I would often see um, Twitter accounts with no followers and no friends. And right. it seemed like they were being churned out en masse and just used to, to amplify. And, and a lot of them were working in tandem. So you'd get an account that would, that would tweet. You look at its Twitter feed and it would be tweeting like a whole bunch of things, political things with the same, you know, along the same line. And then you see right. another account that was doing exactly the same, like it was a carbon copy of the one before. So it was very obvious, you know, with not much analysis <laughs> that this was some kind of coordinated, inauthentic behavior. Uh, that was what really stood out for me. Yeah. yeah. The Jane's Intelligence Unit will be launching a new online open source intelligence masterclass on Monday, the 13th of July, 2020. A modular progressive self-study course. The Jane's Masterclass enables you to learn the same open source intelligence techniques and tradecraft used by Jane's analysts at your own pace, wherever you are. Make sure to visit janes.com forward slash OSINT Masterclass for more information. So, and, uh, so that was going to be our next question, really, was how easy or difficult is it to attribute that activity to specific actors? I mean, you mentioned that China and, and that, I guess in that case, that there's a fairly obvious potential uh, actor that's going to be behind this information campaigns. But in general, is it is it getting harder, easier? You know, so uh, I guess there it's, it's it's in part to do with the level of sophistication of some of that activity that we're seeing. But what you described there, in some ways, wasn't very sophisticated at all. 
Um, attribution is a, is a, is a challenge. Um, so in, in the projects I'm currently working on, um, I'm part of a team that includes uh, other analysts who, who specialize more in that. And they, they do things with domains and like the, the, the who is information and, you know, um, other, other stuff that comes from a URL itself and a domain. Sure. And they can do things that can, can, can help them to attribute it to, like, to somebody who might have registered that and their location and other things. In terms of social media mm. accounts themselves, I'm not sure if they can actually be attributed beyond reasonable doubt. I, I feel that only the, the social media platforms can actually do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing as we're doing projects for the companies themselves, then I think once we present them with, you know, here's some coordinated and authentic behavior, Right. That we think is China, then they can take action and, you know, um, take it down or, or do whatever they want to do. Okay. And, um, thinking about other sort of areas that you've researched, obviously, you, you know, Brexit's been a, 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 that sort of tribalism online that you mentioned in terms of the, the information that flows back and forth from both sides of, of that. Um, mm-hmm. at what point did you have to sort of cut off? Um, because presumably you had to sort of stop gathering information to be able to analyze the information you had. But it seems like it, that issue has just rumbled on. Or, or, or have you seen it sort of taper off? Was it very much a 2016 phenomenon and then it, it slowed down? Or has it continued being a massive issue generating lots and lots of information, which you've had to keep on top of? Or w- were you able to sort of say, actually, I'm going to just stop here and, and analyze what I've got so far? Uh, for, the, for the PhD, I mean, um, so I had to establish a cutoff point because I, I was drawing right. Twitter data from the Twitter API. Um, so it cut off at, well, we, we did it in February 2019. So that was when it came out and that was when it stopped. But in a more general sense, political tribalism on social media has not let up since 2016. And I can see it now, for example, in one very um, important area, I think, is people's refusal to wear masks. <laughs> mm, right. It's like I'm seeing this now. It's becoming a culture war between those who will wear masks and those who refuse to. And I'm seeing this un- unfolding every day now. And uh, it's worrying because, you know, this right now in the coronavirus days, this is a time when we don't want tribalism. We don't want polarization, but we seem to be worse than ever, unfortunately. Do you think, feel that there's a connection there in terms of the tribalism that was generated from sort of 2016 and the events that went on in 2016, that that sort of now just overlapped into other areas, other topics where the same ways of debating issues, um, where people are at complete loggerheads with each other and there's no sort of middle ground. Is that, has that, so have, have the debates around Brexit and the US elections, et cetera, have that, they influenced on an ongoing basis how we continue to sort of see those issues played out on social media, et cetera? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that they have. I think that we're set in patterns now of, you know, of this interacting as a, as a, as a tribe, especially very political people. And the, the grievances that drove people into these divisions in the first place, you know, from 2016, have not been resolved in either the US or the UK. So intergroup conflicts often arises when, when, when the groups feel threatened in some way, right? Either mm-hmm. through something physical being removed from them or through something symbolic, like a, like a threat to their identity. And I think both of these are the case with, with Brexit, for example. So if you look at the Remain side, they're having their freedom of movement forcibly taken away from them. For example, that's just one thing, but that's right. an enormous thing that's going to mm. and it's not been resolved yet. You know, and sure. perhaps in, in contrast, on the other side, the people who want Brexit believe that 
the European Union is taking away their freedom and their sovereignty, you know, so they feel that that's a threat. Right. And, and so within that tribalism and that environment, that, that way that information is, is being discussed and debated and issues are being uh, sort of polarised, um, presumably that leaves bigger openings for malicious actors that want to run disinformation campaigns, that want to influence those discussions one way or the other. You know, so is that something you're you're looking at and you're seeing happening? Yeah, um, there's definitely activity like that going on. Like you, you see it if, if one is tracking, say, Twitter constantly, um, you see upticks in activity when when some political event happens. Like, for example, the Westminster terrorist attack, was it 2017 when that happened, I think, in the midst of Brexit anyway? Yep. Um, there was a big spike in Twitter activity then. Uh, a lot of that was about people either attacking Islam, you know, or people defending it. So, again, a polarized issue which may also be somehow led back to the whole Brexit debate. So perhaps immigration would be a topic, a divisive topic there. Have you, have you sort of seen any specific examples or um, are you seeing any, any trends or um, specific indicators that would help you identify that type of activity? Because yeah. you, know, you mentioned in terms of the Taiwan uh, case as well, that you saw accounts where there was you know, no activity. Um, they had clearly been set up deliberately to help spread um, certain types of content. You know, are there certain indicators that help you sort of discern when there is a disinformation campaign behind something versus actually it's genuinely people who believe this? I see. Yes. Or you organic know? versus. Yeah, exactly. Authentic. Um, yeah, I can. I can give some examples, but 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 I think first of all, it's it's important to remember that that these you know the inauthentic can influence the organic, uh, you know, because it, it all it all goes into people's worldviews, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what's being leveraged here. Um, but so I'll, I'll just try and find a, a specific example. Um, let's just take Brexit again because it's easy. Um, so when when a Brexit related uh, announcement is made in Parliament, for example, and that hits Twitter. And then yeah. you might see a lot of accounts commenting on a particular article that's being shared on Twitter. And quite often you'd notice that they have similar features in their bios. So, for example, they might have St. George's flag and a Union Jack in there. And they could they could right. say something like, I don't know, um, traditional family man, something that's designed to make them appear a certain way, like like to fit a certain identity group, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I've noticed that a lot. I haven't actually done empirical research on it, but from years of observation, I see that that kind of thing a lot. And I, I think it's an indicator. And also also hashtags, you know, like. People use hashtags in their bios and in their in their screen names as well. And mm-hmm. it might be something like hashtag stand up for Brexit or on the other side, hashtag uh, FBPE. That's follow back pro Europe. And that's a, that's a remain hashtag. And I, and I think that because the Twitter bio is so indicative of a person's identity online, <clears throat> it's almost it's almost a proxy for them signaling the membership of their particular tribe. Right. And um, yeah, again, it's something I want to research more in uh, a future paper. It sounds fascinating. Um, yeah. And I think you, you know you're you're clearly not going to run out of any no. <laughs> uh, material, run out of material anytime soon because maybe energy, um, but not material. <laughs> True, true. Um, I mean, just the, the you, you know, you must be seeing, uh, I, I guess, an uptick in in the level of disinformation that's going on. Uh, would that be fair to say across across all of these different issues you're looking at? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And with, with what's coming yeah, up, yeah, I was going to say, with, well, yeah, and what's, what's, with what's coming up later this year, how do you think, how do you see that playing out in terms of, you know, obviously what the US elections yeah. coming up? What are your thoughts ahead of that in terms of, you know, what should people be looking out for, um, to help them spot when something is, uh, being influenced by a disinformation campaign? Are there any sort of, uh, other criteria you think you might take into consideration other than, you know, some of the things you mentioned already? Yeah, I think people who are active in, in political political channels like political Facebook or Twitter, I think they need to be very aware for for users that try to bait them and who try to troll them and bring them into never ending arguments. This is a, this is a thing that happens a lot. And I think its goal, if, if it's an inauthentic behavior rather than just a real person, I think its goal is to create this kind of environment of, of ongoing hostility around an issue um and draw people into into political debates you know which which i think increases the the polarization so so my advice would be in that sense that if you are a, a political person online it is um you know if somebody starts trying to argue with you and you don't want it then just to mute mute or block them if you can and i know how tempting it is because i i too get drawn into these <laughs> <laughs> these arguments because it's a dopamine right. you know like social media yeah. is designed to keep us on there it um, is. so its ad value goes up and giving us these dopamine hits from notifications is a really central part of that so it, it all ties in um in, t- in terms of actual content and you know the sharing of content i think you just have to try and think for at least a second before sharing a piece of content especially if it's if it sort of resonates with you, because this this reson this resonating could be a sign that you know it's triggering your cognitive biases and it's you know it's fitting into your existing views and it's sort of enticing you to share it. But you know you need to think about the veracity of it if you can. So if you if you find yourself reading something or viewing something and you're nodding vigorously in agreement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even then, you want so it's almost the opposite to what you're saying about being baited into an argument. But if something is is something is so in line with your views that actually you think, yeah, this is exactly right, that's almost mm-hmm. a, a cause to pause as well. Yeah, uh, and think about it. Yeah, that's really totally. interesting. Totally, yeah. So we just have to be a bit more, a bit, a bit less sort of um um to to hold back our knee jerk reactions on on the internet. And try, if we possibly can, to just be a bit more thoughtful. And and for goodness sake, don't share things based just on the headline. I'm also guilty of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think probably a lot of a lot of people are, and I've I've certainly tried to become better in, in sharing things, uh, making sure I uh, click on the link and read the article first before sharing the the tweet yeah, kind of thing, sake. which I think a lot of people don't do. Um, yeah. No, they, they don't. Out. And also one one other thing, yeah, that, that yeah. I've done recently, and I, and I think is great is um just subscribe to a reliable news outlet like. I I've got a New York Times subscription and, you know, um, it's nice to know that there's some, some proper journalists. <laughs> it's really interesting you mentioned that. So actually, I was going to loop back to uh, uh, on something you mentioned earlier, the Global Disinformation Index, rating risk ratings of news websites online. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned one there, uh, a news outlet, which, you know, um, in your view is, is reliable. Um, but again, these, it, it, I think that's been the legacy of 2016 um, yep. in terms of, People now are much more willing, perhaps, to debate what is a reliable news outlet versus what isn't. You know, have, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that in terms of how that's maybe played into some of the disinformation campaigns that you've looked at? Yes, it's definitely problematic. Um, so, so when I when I worked with Global Disinformation Index, um, one of the when, when we were categorizing these these domains into quality and, and junk. 
uh, one of the things that was important was um, like the the operations of a of a news domain. So so by that I mean things like does it have um you know a, a, does does it show its team publicly? Does does everything have a byline? Does the byline lead back to a traceable individual with a history? And things like does it have a comments policy? You know who is it funded right. by? All oh, these yeah. things are, yeah. are really important because. Mm-hmm. If you're in Macedonia creating websites to make money, you know, you're not going to have time probably to establish all of these features that together sort of um, point to a more reliable source. You know, you're just going to set up WordPress websites very quickly to start bringing in the ad money. So, so I think True. the operations of a website yeah. are important for, yeah. for starters. I, I think that's fascinating. I mean, that's, that's uh, part of the guidance that we've, we've been trying to sort of um, focus on in some of our training that we provide to people when we talk about open source intelligence and source verification. Um, because a lot of those things, I think pre 2016, you know, when you talk, when we talked about um, source verification in training courses um, to people who are maybe intelligence analysts or research analysts i think they sort of paid lip service to it everyone was like well it's just common sense you know obviously you, you, yeah. you look at information and you you know you do all of that uh evaluation that you've just sort of some of the some of which you just mentioned there but um i think it seemed easier pre-2016 and since 2016 we've definitely seen more and more people coming to our course saying right i really need to understand how to evaluate sources um, so just the things you've mentioned there are fantastic. Um, is, is fantastic advice because, um, you know, digging into how a site operates, who's behind it, who finances it, all of those things, um, they're not easy to do. It does take time, but I think it's something that everybody needs to be much more conscious of and aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I agree. it's, it's, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you find that that was, that, that that also generated debate for you as well in terms of where, when you're comparing maybe your thoughts to somebody else's who you a colleague who you may have been working with that there were still sites you would come across where you know one of you might say well, actually yeah that seems reliable and others might say actually it doesn't seem very reliable um we would tend to be on the same page with with the the easy ones like you know the guardian or the new york times or, or whatever right. um but I know that when we were um, asking our researchers to manually rate these websites, um, we would ask a number of people, like five or six or, you know, not just one person, mm. um, just to make sure that there was some level of agreement between the analysts. So, yeah, that that, that was important. It, it couldn't just be one person's perspective, even if they oh. did share it with most of the rest of the team. Because how, did, uh, how did you deal with, say, for example, where you've got a news outlet, which to all intents and purposes is very reliable, but it has a particular political leaning? You know, like you could look at any any newspaper in the UK and they will have their own individual political viewpoints in general. And, and you know, they, they push certain stories or certain takes on stories. Um, how did you go about evaluating that in terms of how it affects their reliability, perhaps? Yeah, we, we would just... Um just describe it, its political leanings, you know, and, and tag it with left leaning or right leaning um, or, or whatever. So it, it's not really like so another aim of this index was to be was to try and be neutral in a way, you know, um, and that meant treating right leaning sources the same way as left leaning. You know that there are extreme left publications as well. And there are obviously extreme right ones, but it, it tends to be the latter that gets more attention. Sure, sure. Um, but you know, we, we have to treat them. We have to treat them equally. That's it's, it's important when building something like this. And of course, people, you know, I think we got um, the Global Disinformation Index did get 
featured on RT in some not very complimentary way. <laughs> so for those who aren't aware, RT, that's, that's Russia Today. Okay, yeah. That was going to be my, my, my sort of last question really was around, <laughs> um, yeah, how did you deal with uh, outlets that are not necessarily right or left, but maybe state owned or state controlled or state supporting versus, you know, oppositional or, you know, groups within a particular country or, uh, or region? How do we deal with them? Yeah, in terms of, you know, how do you evaluate reliability um, of something which is or, you know, is it still useful even if it is sort of state run? And and did you identify any sort of cases where those sort of state run media outlets are helping maybe drive some of the disinformation campaigns that you looked at as well? I mean, that was that was out of scope for for that particular project with the index. I I have done more recent projects. That were looking at narratives that were consistent, um, like from Russia Today and other Kremlin-linked websites, um, and sort of tracking their their progress across social media. And we found a lot of um, a lot of similar narratives that were that were consistent. So narrative strands that that were consistent across those those domains. Um, but that was not with the index. The, in, the index is always aimed mm, for neutrality okay. and just to to describe mm. the, the the operations and the content of the website without really making a value judgment. Got it. Okay. This is all it's all totally fascinating. Um, and I could uh, honestly sort of <laughs> pick your pick your brains all day really about disinformation and and how you see it evolving and developing and yeah, uh, some of the challenges. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it is. And I think we've got lots more to probably talk about this year, especially with things that are going to be going on and um, you know elections in the U.S. coming up and other things. Yeah, we, we may finally. Um, Leave the European Union, I guess, at some point in the next uh-huh. 12 months. Um, see. <laughs> uh, I've heard that may be happening. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, a lot can sure happen in 12 months. <laughs> Very true. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, I won't hide my perspective on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, this has been, this has been great. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to, to talk to me today and, uh, and come on to the podcast. Um, yeah, hopefully we'll get a chance to sort of catch up again in, in future and, and find out, you know, how, what else you've, you've found in terms of other cases maybe that you've, you've You've researched and uh, any conclusions and, and lessons that can be learned from looking at those cases, um, yeah. because I, I, I think that's one of the big challenges that a lot of people in our audience have is that they're often tasked to identify where disinformation may be occurring online. But it seems to get harder or more sophisticated depending on the region, as, you, as you've described, and also um, the techniques maybe maybe change over time and uh, and keeping up with it, just keeping up with the sheer amount. Keeping of, up with the, the sheer yeah. amount of it, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a volume. Yeah. There's a volume issue there with it. Um, but, you know, if you know what to look for, um, you can still identify patterns that can point you in the right direction when looking for this, this stuff. So, um, you know, I think the next few months are, g- are going to be very active and there's going to be a lot to look out for. Uh, I don't see this problem going away anytime soon unless all the social media platforms suddenly disappear. Then it might. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's not going to happen, is it? Yeah. No, no, actually, it probably won't. Yeah. Um, well, no, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming onto the, onto the podcast. And, um, yeah, hopefully we'll yeah, get a chance to catch up uh, perhaps later in the year and talk about how some of these things have played out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've got a, a new study in the pipeline to do with Brexit and the, the coronavirus. So once that's a bit further along, I'd be happy to chat about it. Excellent. All right. Sounds good. Thank uh, you. Thanks so much, Samantha, for coming on. Yep. And, uh, yeah, uh, talk to you soon. And for everyone listening, hope you enjoyed the podcast and do listen in for future episodes.